Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Bengalis and New York show. My name is Arik and uh, we were repping it for, you know, the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and all over the world. So welcome and enjoy. I'm Zareen. Uh, I work in the fashion industry. Uh, my role is a social media manager editor for a major U.S. luxury high-end contemporary retailer called Intermix. And um, for them, I oversee social media, um, everything from influencer partnerships and marketing, as well as um, create, produce, and ideate uh, fashion campaigns, um, and I'm very involved in their overall PR and creative strategy. Great. So, Kausar? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kausar, um, and I'm the founder and CEO of Noe Chibon. Uh, we are the world's new fashion brand. Uh, our mission is to redefine ethical standards within the global fashion industry. So, we all know, uh, I mean, part of the reason why we're watching this today is because of this current ongoing pay-up campaign. Uh, since 2017, Noyeji Phone has been striving to get global fashion brands to pay up through leading by example. We pioneered the Made Fairly Index, which we'll get uh, deeper into later uh, in, the, in the talk. But thanks for having me, guys. Awesome, awesome. I'm also going to be alongside Cam, just getting some more information on the fast fashion industry and what you guys have a part in this impact on creating more sustainable fashion and to just open up a really broad conversation, can one of you guys just explain what fast fashion is and what it entails? Uh, sure, I'm happy to start. So fast fashion is where, it's, a, it's actually a business model that major retailers um, and different brands use, where it can be traditionally within every 14 days to a 21-day um, like life cycle structure. They assess trends, market reviews, what's happening on the runway, what people are wearing, as well as factors like um, socioeconomic spending ability of who their target consumer is. And they take all that into factor and consideration to create clothing and clothing lines, accessories, etc., to sell to people for them uh, to keep staying up on the latest and the, the newest trends. But it's a business model that allows a company to create products and have them be sold um, within a it's usually a 21 day span. So day one, the product will hit the market. It you'll see um, within the first week, it will peak um, in sales. After the first week, it will begin to decline. And then at the end of that third week, they'll come in um, and drop the new set of, you know, exciting new products for the consumer to purchase. Thank you so much for going into, I had no, I only knew like the half part of it where it's a business <laughs> model and brands kind of do it to just get clothing out there, but I had no idea about the socioeconomic factors. Now, since you work in the fashion industry and you too, um, Gausser, do you notice that there is, there's a sort of motive behind why businesses and brands will choose a fast fashion business model? Is it because the labor is cheap? Is it because they can just get product out rapidly and make consumers content? Do you guys notice that in the fashion world that there's like a bias towards something what do you guys think absolutely well you know i mean it's it just us uh, you know it, it just seems to be how things have always been i think the fact that we have low cost uh, labor right for i mean you're talking a couple us dollars per day in a lot of developing nations such as bangladesh it's very lucrative right and profitable for global fashion retailers, especially when there isn't a shared sense of responsibility. I'm sure we've made tremendous progress um, within the industry through you know, a lot of our alternative brands uh, surface, but there really hasn't been anything to address fast fashion. And I think it, it only makes sense for the consumer, right? Because the consumer is able to indulge in what's called retail therapy and feel good about purchasing low cost affordable garments. Uh, it makes sense for the fashion retailers because uh, they're able to, uh, you know, see minimal overhead and invest uh, billions of dollars into their marketing to drive continued sales and customer loyalty. It makes sense for the garment factories and developing nations such as Bangladesh, where, you know, it's so hyper competitive in this micro economy 
that uh, they're willing to uh, essentially take whatever orders, whatever international or, you know, uh, Bidishi orders they're able to get. And lastly, it makes sense for the factory employees, which uh, in Bangladesh is composed of, oh, I think over 80, 80% of women, right, who typically move from mm-hmm. villages, the ground to uh, the cities in, in hopes of a new life. So it's, it's kind of uh, just a very fragmented system. I think uh, Zareen can, you know, um, further elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I want to speak a little bit about the modern day conception of fashion as well as how retail has evolved. If you look at the industry in the last 150 years, um, where fashion was about 150 years ago was actually very slow. So you were working with ateliers and, um, in, uh, and designers, and they were uh, direct to consumer. You were either buying at what had become you know, the first department stores, or you were going into like, these really specific shops to buy all your clothing. And when you look at how the fashion industry has evolved, um, and I'll get to my point on why I was explaining how people were shopping. It's that when you, when you look at how the fashion industry evolved, there were originally two seasons. Spring and summer, runway shows were um, combined as one, and then you had fall, winter combined as one. And what happened was with the idea of um, consumerism, demand, Um, you know, from the market and so many other factors that played, played in as well as like the age of the internet and then digital media, digital marketing, and now social media. Yes, we have had fast fashion since, you know, the seventies and the eighties. Um, but all of these like modern factors all play a role. Um, something that you can take into consideration is also television and the introduction of how television um, and advertisements played a role in um, driving consumers to want to spend more. So initially, fashion was not created, um, you know, to be having people buy all these exciting things um, every few days or every few weeks. How we shop now is actually very abnormal compared to how people shopped 100 years ago, 200 years ago, from kings and queens to aristocracy. Um, even in, in Bangladesh, hundreds of years ago, uh, you went to a, a special dorji, you went to an atelier, you had everything custom and picked out, and you were only getting several pieces, like four to five tops, for a new season and people were washing their clothes with their hands and handling things with far far more care. So I think a big reason why the industry has shifted from, you know, being slow fashion where they were taking more time and the quality, the production, um, the labor, the, the wage of the labor, the labor workers and the seamstresses, et cetera, is because of modernization. And yes, a lot of it started during the industrial revolution with like the factories, the machines and the and ability to, you know, mass produce, especially when um, countries like America were in wartime and we needed uniforms, um, you know, from like World War One, World War II. Um, and then from there, it's, it's trickled on and clothing really and like how we spend our money on clothing, there is a direct correlation with the kind of economy we are in um, and what the, what a person's spending power is. So, you know, in recent years um, in America and globally, there have been a lot of um, economic ups and downs. We've had a lot of these really intense boom and bust cycles. So, where you'll see that there was an uptick of people buying all of a sudden luxury goods more so when it comes to fast fashion retail, um, that's always been on this like consistently increasing because like something that people can afford no matter what economic situation they're in. If I was making $1,000 a month versus $10,000 a month, it's very likely that I could still afford um, pieces from Forever 21 and H&M, and then I would splurge on something from Zara. Um, So there's definitely a a very um, big impact of technology, modernization, um, as well as how the economy and socioeconomic status of um, consumers has been impacted. And it directly relates to how we spend um, and why fast fashion has grown and evolved to what it is today. You mentioned something so important. I think 
you said specifically that we have an abnormal way of shopping nowadays. And I'm going to tie that a little bit into materialism, just a little bit. And I want to know both of your guys' opinions, since you both work in the fashion industry, how materialism affects, uh, this is a very obvious question, but how does materialism nowadays affects a brand's ability to skyrocket in production, ability to produce more clothing? Do brands feed into consumers' materialistic behaviors? Is that like a marketing tactic? It's something a little deeper into what you guys no, but I would love to discuss it. I personally would love to hear um, Gausser's take on it because um, I think that he is a very brilliant, um, you know, business owner and um, he starting his clothing line. Um, and I feel like I could, um, you know, piggyback off of it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, we see it across all verticals, all industries nowadays, right? We live in this. Uh, you know, uh, on-demand society, right? So, you know, I see it, I want it, you know, I need it, I got it, right? And essentially, the same applies to the fashion industry, right? Um, where we're now even seeing financing, right? And the microfinance market emerge within the whole buy, uh, buy now, pay later model, right? And that just indicates that um, more than ever, I think society as a whole, um, sure, I mean, there's, uh, you know, minimalism, right? The whole argument of society being minimalistic. But I think we're looking at the mass market, which uh, the fast fashion industry caters to. Um, we're looking at more materialism than ever before. And a part of that reason is just uh, marketing in itself, right? We see it across other industries, which may directly or indirectly um, maybe, you know, connected to the fashion industry, right? We have all these famous rappers in the music industry promoting certain fashion brands, right? Gucci Gang or, you know, Balmain Jeans, whatever it is, right? And and it's all, it's all centered around uh, marketing and, and, and technology, right? And just how we communicate with each other. And, and we, reality is we live in an influencer world where majority of us are trying to keep up with the Joneses. And, uh, you know, we just have this, uh, I would say, disposable mindset when it comes to fashion, right? Uh, I'm going out to the pre-COVID, I'm going out to the mall, mom. And, you know, I'm coming back with four or five pieces of clothing, which I probably will just wear, you know, on, on a night out once. And, never touch it again right and uh i think zareen can elaborate on that further with her you know expertise um that is why i wanted gaster to kick it off because i feel like he has a really strong knowledge and understanding um from what's going on like on the street to in the stores um and you know I think that from the perspective and point of view as business owners one of uh the main point of your question was to ask like um you know it, why is our shopping abnormal and how are brands like feeding into that? And a big part of that is because um, in terms of why our shopping habits are abnormal is because back to what I was saying regarding technology and media, um, we are so focused, like how Gosser said, keeping up with the Joneses. But like, I think we're so focused on keeping up with, you know, the modern day version of that. Um, which is the Wests and the Jenners and anybody else that we see with major social media, digital uh, media clout and following. And it's like, sometimes we forget that these people, um, celebrities, influencers, well-known people in the fashion, uh, fashion industry, Hollywood media that we really look up to um, and admire, um, they are, are consuming the way that they are because it fits their specific lifestyles of being sponsored and getting paid to represent brands, etc. And I think we forget, like sometimes rather than being like the true consumer, we then um, now want to become that influencer and that celebrity and that kind of, um, you know, media personality because we're given the ability to do so. Um, you know, if this was, if this was 10 years ago, I couldn't get on here on um, Facebook and present myself um, as somebody well known in the industry, uh, you know, just at the drop of a hat um, and give these kinds of expertise. I would have to be somebody who's written books, published articles, you know, maybe been on radio, on TV or whatever to have more of um, to have more clout, but because of my phone, because of my computer, because of um, social media and various technologies and applications, it's like we, our mindsets have been turned. Uh, we're no longer just a consumer. We ourselves are walking and living um, 
living brands. And I think what happens is brands realize that and they feed into it. Um, a really good example of that would be, I would say like, for example, um, everyone says Chanel and Supreme are king. With Chanel, while they have always been known for being um, slow atelier handmade fashion, and they still keep they still keep up with the handmade part. Um, you know, Chanel has been producing um, significantly higher quantities. Their um, their prices have gone up because the demand is so significant. Can you believe it that um, fifty years ago, maybe a Chanel bag was $500 and now it's $5,000 and that's because of the demand. And that $5,000 has gone up 200% from what it cost even like maybe 10, 15 years ago. Um, and yeah, it's because we now have the ability to show off these things, to share these things. Um, and everybody wants to like inspire others, but also, um, build their own brand. And then like with Supreme, they have a drop style where it's like, again, for these, for this, from this, um, Thursday to Thursday, I'm going to put out like these four t-shirts, these four hats, these four, four skateboard decks, and everything is limited. And the focus is to drive people to pick up and buy these products as quickly as possible. And you'll notice that with fast fashion also comes a really big um, resale market, which is like a whole nother thing that I could get into. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, there's so many facets to how brands are looking into it. But of course, their major driver in this whole thing is as much revenue as quickly as possible. Hey, so it's just from the perspective of a uh, normal consumer that wants to support socially conscious, conscious businesses. Um, you know, I don't, if, if I'm a consumer that doesn't want uh, to support a company that doesn't pay you know, its, its, uh, its employees, is, is there a direct correlation, and this is for both of you, is there a correlation between the price of what I'm purchasing and how socially conscious they are? So, I mean, you mentioned Chanel and, you know, so uh, my question is, okay, if I'm supporting Old Navy um, and a t-shirt costs $10, but if a Chanel t-shirt costs $100, is Chanel 100 times more or 10 times more socially conscious because they're 10 times more expensive? No, not necessarily. So just because you're, you're paying more money for something with a designer or something from um, one label doesn't necessarily mean that it is being made in a socially conscious way. Um, whereas if you're buying something um, that is a lower cost, it could be that both products are being made at, you know, at a proportional rate that is equal where like, of course, one product might have had raw materials and goods to um, produce the garment, um, costing overhead costs be significantly less. Like the overhead costs for the Old Navy shirt, it's very likely that it was significantly less than what the overhead costs for the um, Chanel shirt shirt is. It is, it is known or can be thought, um, I'm, I'm not like 100% sure like how the two companies run their exact business models, but you know, it could be, considered that maybe one is paying their workers more. But I think that socially conscious doesn't, it isn't something that is clued in because of pricing. Socially conscious is clued in because of um, a business model and how, and the brand um, communicating that business model to its consumers. There are a lot of designers and labels that have socially conscious product um, that are in this like, lower to mid contemporary price range. And then there are um, others that are creating socially conscious um, uh, apparel, accessories, et cetera, at a very high end luxury price. So I think branding for a brand on its own and um, their brand identity is like the most major factor in their pricing. Um, but of course, sustainability, ethical practices and being socially conscious, et cetera, um, are added value as well as added costs. It's not necessarily that just because something, one brand has a product that's more expensive than another product, but it's not, 
essentially the same thing, like two t-shirts, um, that one brand is producing it more ethically, consciously, et cetera, than the other. I know one ind- indicator that Kauser is working on is the Made Fairly Index, right? So Kauser, I know uh, you've worked really hard in creating this index so people know that the clothing that they're purchasing, you know, um, does come from a source that's sustainable and uh, conscious. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So uh, the Made Fairly Index is uh, essentially a nonprofit organization owned by Noya Chipon's parent company, Chipon Techs. And essentially, the goal of the Made Fairly Index is to promote this notion of a unified standard of fashion manufacturing, right? Um, sure, you know, many brands would claim that their supply chain is ethical. Um, I really respect uh, what uh, Michael Preisman, the CEO of Everlane, has done in, in promoting what's called uh, you know, uh, radical uh, supply chain transparency. But we really wanted to take it one step further, right? And because Noya Chipon's mission is integrated in, in solving the very root of the problem, we believe that you know, through controlling the means of our production and utilizing this metric, the standard um, for, for manufacturing our products, we're able to uh, ensure that uh, other brands who follow suit and do the same, right? And so in a nutshell, Made Fairly Index is a universal standard uh, encompassing the minimum wage, minimum working standards, and the minimum benefits that must be granted to garment factory employees everywhere. Um, since its uh, initial um, conception, we've really started developing various metrics. Um, big shout out to uh, you know, all of the researchers over at the New Age team lot of our research interns as well for helping us develop it. But now we're kind of essentially dividing up um, the different develop, you know, developing nations in which fashion products are produced. And then, um, you know, essentially laying out what uh, a reasonable minimum wage for Bangladesh would be, what a reasonable minimum wage for India would be, uh, Vietnam, China, and so on and so forth. And that way we're taking into respect the, the, per- the purchasing power of, of you know, uh, the local currency and uh yeah we've um you know made a lot of progress but we have so far to go um but yeah made fairly index in a nutshell that wow <laughs> that is such a good initiative Gausser. and i want to kind of piggyback off of what cam asked i'm not sure if you know the answer to this but you are the owner of a very sustainable fashion brand why aren't more billionaires of wealthy brands why aren't more CEOs of companies taking initiatives, is there a difficulty in balancing the reduction of a carbon footprint to a production of clothing? Is it difficult or is it a matter of greed? What can you say about it? I mean, well, it's a two-sided coin, right? Um, you know, I, I mean, I as a startup founder can say, oh yeah, like, why doesn't, uh, um, you know, the Persone family at H&M or, you know, the Ortega family at Inditex go ahead and, uh, you know, do X, Y, and Z in order to really, you know, make the brand truly sustainable instead of just greenwashing, right? I'm sure a lot of the viewers will have seen um, Don Minaj's um, whole talk about fast fashion, but um, essentially it's easier said than done, right? I mean, when you're, when you're a startup, you're extremely malleable, you're able to make certain changes, you're able to um, be flexible, right? But when you're a globally established brand generating billions in revenue, you're, you're limited to what you can do, especially when you have so many stakeholders, board members, um, financial goals uh, to meet, right? So uh, I guess if we're looking at it from the lens of, uh, you know, the startup founder or newer companies like your Everlings, right? Um, it's, it's, a lot, it, it's very easy to uh, create a supply chain that's rooted in sustainability when you're just starting out. Versus, you know, your brand, uh, your globally established brands like your Primarchs, H and M, Zara, so on and so forth. They've been operating in this fast fashion, lowest cost per unit model for decades now, right? And they've been very successful at doing so. And I think just now we're seeing a consumer shift, right? A consumer uh, mindset shift in how we're purchasing our clothing, and and they're having a more difficult time adapting. To these new consumer demands of a, of a cohesive supply chain, just because they've been comfortable with operating in that business model for so long. So um, I'm giving it, you know, an unbiased, uh, double-sided approach, right? For for newer companies like New Age Bond that will, you know, one day, um, God willing, become the next uh, competitor to H and M, to Zara, to Uniqlo. It's a lot easier for us now because we don't really have any investors to report to, but 
for brands like H&M and Zara, I think the shift will take uh, a much longer time. So it just, I mean, it comes down to uh, who's leading the company, upper level management, and, and ultimately the willingness to sacrifice, uh, you know, uh, profits for the people and to invest in the long term. Going off of the conversation on sustainability, I'm going to bring up the pay up campaign. It's a big conversation and coming from two experts in the field, could we just touch base on the ramifications of pay up and the benefits of it? So one of the things that pay up entails is that a brand needs to pay its workers and then it can send out its supply. However, this has caused a lot of brands to cancel their shipments. Now, although the intention of pay up is absolutely great, do you think that there is some negative negative ramifications behind that or that pay up could have been approached better coming from two experts? Uh, Yeah, I can kick that off. So I think that um, in terms of uh, pay up and the entire movement, it shows that a lot of corporations and brands are not exactly taking the steps needed um, to move towards more um, ethical, sustainable, and socially conscious practices um, that the world needs. Um, Of course, there are so many different contributing factors to the specific situation happening um, in Bangladesh, um, you know, and, and globally. But in this, um, in this specific case with uh, pay up and how it's impacting um, and how it's impacting the Bangladesh garment industry, I think the benefits are that it's making people um, be held accountable and assume responsibility. Um, it's bringing to light the existing conditions and then what COVID-19 has um, layered onto those existing conditions. Um, and it's making the world m- more aware. Um, right now we're living in a time of wokeness and that is really important and it's really crucial um, that people become more educated. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think in terms of the ramifications, it's that one of the things um, that was brought up initially was finger pointing. And, it go- and it's uh, like this. Is it fault? Is it all? um, So I actually read this article in NPR about this woman. Her name is um, Sampa Akhtar. She makes $95 a month working in a garment industry and working in a garment factory in Bangladesh garment industry. And she said that she's more likely to, um, you know, in the recent months, more likely to die of starvation um, than coronavirus itself because of the financial implications um, that this crisis has put on um, the factories. And so while a lot of um, factory owners are taking whatever me- uh, measures as they can, so like for example, in Bangladesh, you're legally required to um, pay your employees severance. However, there's nobody policing and holding these um, factory owners um, accountable. And so majority of them, I would say like eight out of 10 of them don't pay severance. Then you have corporate corporations, um, conglomerates, major textile unions, et cetera, who are giving some kind of reparation. But of course, um, it's not enough because when you have 1 million people that are working in an industry that contributes to 84% of the global export, um, it is, creating such a significant, significant struggle that at this point, the amount of aid is not enough. So some of the ramifications are that corporations are thinking, should I even be manufacturing ever in Bangladesh? Why don't I pull out and go to Turkey, Vietnam, um, Indonesia, um, or, you know, some of these other companies, Um, you know, some are, and then some, when they're canceling their orders, um, they're not, paying up the, um, employees, like there's no up, there's like, for example, there's no upfront cost, and the fashion industry as a whole actually works on this kind of like debt system, um, even in America right now. So upfront costs for the, for the corporations are paying for the raw materials and goods. But then when it comes to the like production and seeing any like revenue, that's all based off of 
sending all those raw materials and goods to be refined, produced, and then turned into ready. Um, then they, once they're produced, then they pay the people who produce the raw materials into fabric, who are their suppliers. Then they go from the suppliers to the um, actual factories. And until the samples are done, the orders are completed, nobody is, is getting paid. So it's both a silver lining and that now it's making people, hopefully making people reassess um, the payment structure and business model of how they're, um, you know, like should part of payments be paid up front? Should there be clauses that like think that you can't get your pay, um, deposits and per certain parts of payments back? But then the negative side of that is, should I be working with these factories? Should I be manufacturing in this country? Is there somewhere else that I can make a higher margin? Or what percentage of my margin can I, my profit margin, can I lose out on um, and still like over time, um, you know, be in the green? So I think um, there is both sides of it that's really tough. That's really tough um, to like to straighten out and work on together because if you think about it, the garment industry in Bangladesh is the way that it is systemically. There were no initial laws, protections, regulations put in place to protect these workers. It honestly wasn't even until Rana Plaza happened that there was any reform, you know? And because of those reforms, you're now seeing um, a lot of the changes that we have today. But even with like coronavirus, um, the way that the Bangladesh government is handling it, the way that the factory owners are handling it, they are as much at fault as well as the, um, as well as the corporations. Nike, H&M, Adidas, they, did their, they were doing their best by giving $7.5 billion um, to the overall industry um, in reparation. You have um, the EU pulled together 126 million. There was another union, um, and like between unionization and government emergency aid, I think they had like $735 million. But like I said, when some, when something like this and the garment industry, um, accounts for 84% of the exports, um, you know, of Bangladesh, this amount of money is, is not enough. So it's tough. Yeah, I was just going to comment. It's interesting. I had a conversation with a family member last year. This is before COVID and before pay up. But they were uh, having difficulty finding, and I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge, huge, I'm not a fan of servants uh, and the number of and indentured servitude, servitude that exists in Bangladesh, but it, it exists. And I, I remember speaking to a family member, they were saying they were having a tough time finding servants um, last year because a lot of the people that would work that those types of jobs have moved into the garment industry. So I, so I, it makes me think though, that like you said, it's a systemic issue because if, the, if these companies pull out of Bangladesh, um, you know, pull their contracts out of Bangladesh, it's not like these, these people's lives aren't going to be better. There's going to be a going, uh, it's just going to be another situation, which is, um, you know, indentured servitude. Um, and, um, it's not like they have a union either. And I think like, so I think that's, you know, my initial comment in the beginning is that it's so much, so there's so much blame to go around. Um, the Bangladesh government, certainly, but also these factory owners uh, who, um, and you guys can tell, if you, if you know more about this, is, is their, um, their opposition to unions Right. There's this movie that we uh, that I saw called Made in Bangladesh, and they talk about and they, they cover how women are trying to create unions in, in these uh, factories. And they're having a really tough time because these um, factory owners, don't, you know, basically bully them for, uh, into not creating these unions. Um, so do you have any thoughts on that? So just like, again, you know, inability to create unions, the role of the Bangladeshi government and also the responsibility of you know, the factory owners um, you know, in Bangladesh. Absolutely, uh, if I may begin on that. So uh, when I was back in Bangladesh in 2018, uh, we were filming a portion of our Empowered documentary, you know, just visiting a few different fact uh, factories uh, in the Gajipur uh, area. Um, and uh, I actually came uh, face to face with uh, 
one of the men responsible for the Rana Plaza factory collapse. You know, it was a short man. And uh, we were, as we were pulling up, uh, you know, so essentially what uh, he was leasing, uh, you know, a brand new factory that, uh, well, that someone just developed, you know, these uh, real estate developers just developed. And uh, when he saw our car try to pull into his factory, brand new state of the art factory, um, he was, you know, he, he said, you know, that we can't go in. And, uh, you know, uh, the real estate developer who actually owned the land that the factory was being built on, he actually, um, you know, signaled us to go in. And uh, immediately when we went inside, he signaled us to put the cameras down. So, you know, we, we listened. And, uh, you know, with his two engineers by his side, you know, he told me, he's like, listen, like, you're extremely, you're extremely unpatriotic. Um, I know what you're trying to do. You're selling yourself to the West. You don't know the struggle of uh, what it is to, um, you know, own a garment factory, this and that, right? So he was extremely, he was being extremely defensive, right? And uh, I, I could tell he was nervous. But one thing that I did get is being face to face with the tyrant, right? With a man that essentially was responsible for the death of over 1,100 garment workers. It's 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 a whole shared, it's a whole system, right? It's a, it's a whole systemic failure and not assuming shared responsibility, right? He was as defensive as he as he was, obviously, because he knows that he's walking about freely um, after committing, you know, uh, essentially um, heinous crime. But really, it, it goes down to shared responsibility, right? Uh, one of my biggest Bangladesh inspirations um, is, uh, you know, no, uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner uh, and uh, Mohammed Yunus, sorry, and uh, in Mohammed Yunus's uh, talk with, I think it was Al Jazeera at the time. He was saying how we need a shared responsibility between the garment factories and the Western brands, between the Western brands and the Western consumers, and ultimately between the Western consumers and the factory employees. And the reason why I'm saying we need shared responsibility and shared connection between the Western consumers and the garments workers is because usually they never see the very back, us as Western consumers, we never see the very backbone of the economy. You know, we don't see that 19 year old girl that's staying up until 2 a.m. after work, working a 10 hour shift at a factory in Gajipur trying to work on our bachelor's degree, right? We don't see that. And we believe uh, through taking initiatives such as striving to bridge the gap between the fa uh, Western consumers and factory employees themselves, that's the only way we're really able to create change. Because the factory owners are going to take whatever they can get. The fashion brands are going to do whatever they can to meet their financial goals, right? As most of them are publicly traded companies. So the true responsibility, and for everyone that's watching this, I really highly encourage you to always have ethics at the forefront of your mind when you're shopping for your clothing, right? And uh, I'm not really trying to promote what Noe Chibon is doing or the Made Fairly Index, but just from a consumer perspective, we're the true facilitators of change. And if we don't change the way we think about fashion when we're shopping, nothing is going to change, right? We can't just have a, a, a revol you know, protest or um, a, a social media revolution, um, a hashtag, whatever it is, and then you know, let all that momentum subside. We have to continue this movement through having ethics at the forefront of our mind when we're shopping for our favorite fashion brands. And uh, I say this from the perspective of a consumer and not an executive. And also we kind of on the topic of pay up and also just a youth driven movement that's happening now is we are slowly starting to realize the racism embedded in our society, embedded in institutions and in systems that we may disregard every day. And I am getting into the institution and the systems of fashion that have been built up in our society. And, you know, as both of you work in that industry, is fast fashion racist in the way it has been systemically brought up into society? And if any of you guys can dis disclose any of that or any information regarding the background. Um, I can speak on the, like from the corporation side and standpoint um, is, so for example, What's happening in Bangladesh amongst Bangladeshi garment workers um, and their um, and those who are the factory owners? I don't think what's happening between them is racism. I think that's more about like class system, socioeconomic status, um, and uh, like between them, it's you know from the factory owner side, it's 
not just corporate greed, but it's also trying to earn like a very comfortable life and comfortable living, um, you know, from, from both ends. And then, you know, from the factory workers, it's, you know, being a part, being somebody who is living in Bangladesh and growing up in a certain environment and socioeconomic status and class, um, they are not in a land of opportunity and land of the free. They only have these very specific um, sources from which they can gain knowledge, income, food, um, and, and, and get by. Like how I was saying that woman, Sampa Akhtar, that NPR did the interview on, she only makes $95 a month. And with that money, she has to support a disabled brother, her parents, her, her children. So I don't necessarily think that within Bangladesh, there is racism. I think it's more of um, a class system and how, um, and how there's a lot of like unfair treatment and not enough governance and regulation around, um, fair, uh, fair wages. Whereas on the other side of corporations now in America, since the black lives matter movement has, you know, been flourishing and we've seen a lot of positive outcome and change It's also been very well known and clear that at major fashion publications, fashion brands, retailers, um, and e-commerce companies and sites, that there is a tremendous amount of racism and unconscious bias that happens within. Um, And that, of course, isn't just specific to the United States. Um, That is globally, wherever there are people of all different cultures, skin colors, um, and ethnicities. And notice how I don't use the word race, even though we're talking about racism, because um, essentially we're all one human race, if we want to be like really scientific about it. It's that we've, you know, created um, these systems of of, um, judging people based on color and class and et cetera. So I think from like the corporate standpoint, um, yes, a lot of corporations do have, um, have racism in it. And it is also systemic because I can tell you right now that one of the reasons I take so much pride in being working in the fashion industry is because there aren't a lot of Bangladeshi women who work in social media or fashion media, um, or work high up, um, in the fashion industry. And then in the greater picture of being South Asian, you don't really see that much amongst Indian women, um, and Asian women compared to, um, compared to the ratio of how many of us there are to- like in total within a specific company, um, or globally outside of South Asia. And it's really uncommon to be a Bangladeshi woman working in fashion and not being a garment industry worker. So, of course, for me, this is something that I'm really prideful, you know, prideful about. And this is something that I want to, you know, take a greater stance on and help other women of um, Asian, South Asian, Black, Hispanic, Latinx, um, uh, you know, descent, culture, etc., to to help them break into these industries. But I think that what's happening is greater than racism. It is so awful how it is a mix of not only racism, but it's a mix of faulty governance. It's become political. Um, and it's become, um, about like economic, economic greed and how that, you know, filters, filters into it. Um, there has been many times where I personally have worked at companies and I've noticed that when my perception and input isn't there, the outcome of what is produced is very, very different and not always sensitive. But I've also noticed that in my own unconscious bias and, you know, we are all accountable. It doesn't matter like what skin color we all, we are, we all need to be held accountable when it comes to racism and prejudice. There have been times where I unknowingly have, um, you know, done things or maybe posted something or written a caption or styled something in a way that was truly offensive to somebody of, um, a different, um, a different skin color or ethnicity, um, minority than me. So it's 
really like a, um, a larger, a larger pic- picture, I think. And I feel like Gausser can definitely speak on the, um, the class, the class aspect of that. Um, and also I feel like he can really talk about cultural appropriation and, um, especially, you know, his company being so big on streetwear and street style, how we look to so many other, um, minority groups for inspiration, but, and we love their culture, but we don't respect them in the same way. Um, so yeah, wanted to give it away to Kauser. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I, yeah, I definitely think, um, I mean, we're seeing more cultural diversity, right? So, I mean, instead of starting off with, I guess, the negative elements, um, I would say we make tremendous strides forward, right? As, as a collective whole, as a society, right? I mean, by, I mean, by no means would we openly, you know, acknowledge uh, taking ideas from, you know, a, a black designer, right, 50 years ago. Yet now we're seeing you know, more and more uh, designers uh, of color in general in the creative spaces. And I think the fashion industry has made a lot of progress. However, we do have a lot of room, uh, you know, to improve, right? Uh, I'm not gonna really mention names, but recently, uh, you know, there was this one brand, a one global brand that uh, used, um, or, or that had, that was selling essentially like pray, Islamic prayer mats and been promoting it and marketing it as like, you know, just a everyday carpet for your pet, right? And, and I just thought like, yeah, that, that was a clear indicator that there is a lot of cultural appropriation that exists. And, uh, you know, I guess from an entrepreneurial perspective, as we're seeing even more entrepreneurs of color emerging, uh, definitely keep cultural diversity um, at the top of your, um, you know, priority checklist, right? Uh, we at New Age Bon initially expanded with having primarily Bangladeshi uh, team members, yet now we have a global uh, internship program, which we now have people from all parts of the world, right? And we get that Chinese perspective on New Age Bon. We get that Eastern European perspective, um, you know, that uh, American perspective and so on and so forth. Um, you know, through the, the mere fact that we've always kept cultural diversity at, you know, the, the, the forefront, you know, of our mission. So I guess I can only really speak for, you know, from, from an entrepreneurial perspective. It's just definitely like we got to keep pushing this cultural diversity stuff, right? It sounds cool to say, but we got to actually walk the walk and, 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 you know, give credit to where credit is due and, and really know that uh, minority and really know and acknowledge that minority culture is a new social capital and instead of, uh, you know, thinking of how we can bank on that, we need to think of how we can truly um, portray it for, for what it is and, and give respect to it, right, instead of taking it for granted. Agreed. And one more thing I wanted to add is that a lot of times, um, mar- so I forgot to touch on marketing. I think that a lot of times... Um, uh, racism can also be felt in marketing. It might not necessarily always be intentional. Um, but for example, recently we had, um, some, was it Simone Biles? I think she was the Olympic gymnast. She was on the cover of, I'm sorry if I'm not saying her name right, but she was on the cover of Vogue. And there was a lot of, um, talk about how Annie Leibovitz did not do her justice, that the way she was lit was really ashy and that she's this beautiful Olympic medalist and that, um, you know, she should be lit with these bright, light, warmth colors. And it was like really tough um, on both ends of the argument because Annie Leibovitz is somebody who since like the early 90s has um, spoken not just on behalf of Vogue or digital publications, but for herself on saying how there needs to be more racial inclusivity and diversity. And it was like, sometimes like we don't know where to draw the line because could she have been like lighting the gymnast in that way to show like the harshness of what she went through, the sexual harassment, rape and assault or, and, or was it actually racism? And then how about like, um, you know, brands like Louis Vuitton, how they market so much to people who are um, black and a significant amount of their sales is, you know, driven because of the, of the black consumer, yet um, they don't really, like, do they, like, I don't know, do they have a lot of people of color? Do they have a lot of people who are black and, um, you know, people of different cultures, ethnicities, um, diversities working on those ad campaigns? So it's like, 
not only can we be tone, not only can we be tone deaf, racist, um, you know, discriminatory within house of who we hire and what ideas we take into consideration and how we execute on it, but then also how we represent, um, our brands and what we put out there for people to see, are those also being, um, culturally, culturally sensitive as well. Um, and that also plays, I think, um, plays a big part of it. I feel like, um, I feel like we're learning a lot from you guys. Really appreciate it. I wanted to end with about the conversation with pay up and I wanted to get both of your thoughts on whether the impact of pay up will be a net positive or a net negative. I believe um, it'll definitely be a net positive, right? As long as there's that massive action to complement the awareness, right? Um, in any marketing campaign, and, and Zareen, from an expert standpoint, um, for someone who's worked in the fashion industry, has taught me, um, you know, because you're uh, consulting, you know, with Noe Chipon, um, she's taught me that for sure, first there's awareness, there's brand awareness, and then there's sales, right? So really, now that we have this awareness around this movement, we need to drive not necessarily the sales, but the action, right? Um, what can we do uh, from a consumer standpoint? What can we do for, from a producer standpoint? What can we do as fellow Bangladeshis or fellow South Asians? What can we do within our global communities or global communities? How can we give back? And I think it really goes towards just um, committing, right, to have ethics at the forefront of our mind and have always have this one question, and that's, how are my clothes made, right? And, and, and just demanding that our clothes were made fairly. And, and I think it will definitely leave a legacy of, of just uh, continuous progression. It may not happen overnight. We may not be able to see a drastic change in the fashion industry with overzealous promises from global brands overnight. But as long as we keep that light alive and, and we complement this awareness with massive action, we'll see the results that we eventually want to reach. I agree. I completely agree with Gausser and that I think that this will have a positive um, overall outcome. Whereas um, initially, I mean, specific to pay up, what's really hard is that so May 31st, when Bangladesh reopened majority of its factories and um, brought people back into work, so garment industry workers are essential workers because of the significant impact of the economy. But when everyone did come back on May 31st, there were the factory owners that said, okay, we'll give you back 60% of uh, the money that you were o are owed from, you know, the weeks that the six weeks or how many ever weeks we couldn't keep you here. But then when Rana Plaza happened, these, a lot of these workers had almost 100% of reparations. And yes, that was because there was no global crisis and there was no global pandemic. And in this specific pay up situation, um, corporations are also hurting just as the factories are hurting and the overall GDP of, you know, so many different economies. I mean, if you look at the situation Americans are facing, just think about how much worse it is um, for Bangladeshis. So I think that's like some that's some perspective there is that in respect to pay up at the moment everyone has everyone has been hit from COVID nineteen glo globally across the board in in some way whether small or grand. On top of that, you have the layer of um, Bangladesh garment industry it's itself and in general. When you look at what impacts. Um, positive impacts and outcome happened due to um, Rana Plaza, we realized that, okay, now there's like some kind of, um, you know, special uniforms or like proper machinery, or there's like certain exit signs or buildings have to have certain codes. Now, like that, what we're seeing from this whole COVID-19 situation is, um, these garment workers cannot be sitting on top of each other or an inch away from each other. They have to be having like proper sanitary stations to like be wash their hands, be clean, get face masks, etc. Um, and then in terms of like that, in terms of like taking care of these workers so that they're able to come back and do their jobs, you know, these basic fundamental needs like food needs to. Um, needs to be addressed too. Um, I'm not sure that Bangladesh has um, 
like I, I know that they don't have unemployment um, benefits, et, et cetera, but I think this puts into perspective what certain countries, especially like Bangladesh, that's disaster, natural disaster ridden and prone to, um, you know, a lot of these kinds of situations, um, what more needs to be done from them, what they need to be negotiating in the contracts with these corporations, um, what kind of liabilities and accountability um, and responsibilities everybody um, owes. But overall, I do think it will be a positive outcome and that we will work to, towards change. One more thing I wanted to note is that um, I wanted to talk about um, how there is cities in the world who are doing it right and how um, it's, they, we should be looking to these cities for um, how they are producing clothing. So when we talk about pay up, there's um, a couple of things in mind. Being socially conscious, um, ethical, um, as well as sustainable. While pay up is more about being ethical and um, socially conscious, um, sustainability all falls into it because it's not just sustainability of the raw materials that you're using, it's sustainability of the business model um, in you know, producing the, the work, which does impact and include factory workers. Um, I just wanted to talk for a second about uh, Copenhagen. So Copenhagen um, is really becoming a world leader, I would say, in creating both socially conscious, sustainable, and ethical fashion. There are a lot of these incredible brands from like Ghani, Bamun Garden, Munda, like that no one really had known about um, outside of Europe for years and years. But as um, the initiatives are moving forward, as people are taking more initiative to move forward to like ethical practices, you're seeing now these brands on out of Copenhagen are coming to rise because from the conception and inception of these brands, they've made, you know, from like the two thousands or late nineties or mid two thousands have made effort to source ethically sustainably produce, um, in, um, you know, factories that have, um, proper precautions, regulations, measures, and pay their workers um, fair, wa fair wages. And then with all of that built in, then they um, determine what should the cost of my, um, you know, the, what should the cost of the different products that I'm selling, what should they be, um, and, you know, assessing the margin, et cetera. I think that while everybody wants to focus on making money, I think the focus needs to be more about um, making clothing, which is an essential item, and making it in the ethic, like, ethical, sustainable, socially conscious way, and then um, focusing on how you could do that while uh, earning a profit or eventually earning a profit and um, coming in the green. And so a lot of these labels started off that way, and now we're seeing the rise. Um, whereas a lot of these fast fashion brands, major corporations, that was never their initial goal. And it's something new that, um, they've taken on. So whereas I've seen like what these designers and these brands have done and are doing, I think that it is possible for Bangladesh to, um, to do that, to get there. Same thing with China, Vietnam, Turkey, and other um, major countries where we see textile manufacturing um, happen, but it's a matter of um, changing the models, the structures of the pricing and um, making the consumer aware that like that $5 shirt is now going to be $15. And instead of buying 20 a year, you should probably only buy eight. You know, it, it, it's, it's full circle. It's, it's really a, a full circle um, concept. You know, once, something you just touched on and Gausar touched on earlier too, is that these corporations, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the ones that have uh, horrible reputations in terms of being socially conscious are publicly traded. Um, and as a publicly traded company, uh, their first priority and their second priority, uh, the first priority is, is their shareholders. Um, so uh, they are not, uh, certainly not prioritizing 
the consumers even, or even, or their, their employees, uh, it's the shareholders. Um, and so they're driven by, uh, by profits. And so I, I'm curious and wanted to get Kasu's thoughts on this because you run a private company, you're not publicly traded. So do you think that as a consumer, we can support um, you know, socially cons conscious businesses by focusing uh, you know, our, 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 our purchasing power on private companies as opposed to publicly traded companies? Absolutely, right? I mean, it's, uh, it's really, um, I mean, we, the reality is we, you know, from a consumer standpoint, we vote with our dollars and, uh, you know, through, uh, you know, making purchase, purchasing decisions um, from, uh, you know, an ethical, uh, socioeconomic and, and sustainable standpoint, um, and then kind of just having a holistic approach when, uh, you know, uh, purchasing for essential consumer goods, I think, I think that's becoming uh, more and more normalized within society. And, uh, yeah, I definitely, I do believe that, um, you know, supporting private companies um, is, uh, is, is going to be beneficial towards solving this problem. But the reality is as private companies grow and, and, and evolve, you know, there, there becomes uh, kind of the catch 22 issue where, you know, in order to, to scale, you know, you, you need to raise a bunch of money and in order to raise a bunch of money, um, you know, you, you have to have a certain level of scale. And I think right now, going to, you know, or, yeah, like almost at year three for New Age Ebola, I'm, I'm kind of running into that issue, right? Because at one point, the money is going to run out, right? And it's like, okay, well, how can I continue funding this company, um, you know, through cannibalizing, uh, you know, my, my other uh, uh, media production company, right? How, how can I, how can I uh, continue to run this company without external funding? And then that's when you go into, you know, the whole politics of, just, uh, you know, investment, right? And I, I believe our greatest investors right now are, you know, at New Age Bone are our supporters, right? Those who not only purchase our products, but also simply just share the work that we're striving to do. And I think that's the best way to support um, any, uh, you know, uh, socially conscious um, brand or, or company, whether it's in the fashion space, food, media, news, so on and so forth. Gosser, you just made me think of something really quick. Um, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been such a push to eat organic food. And um, when organic food was first hitting the mass market, it was so expensive. Yeah. And it created this stigma that in order to eat healthy, you have to spend so much money. And there was a time where people in America were eating so much fast food, which contributed to obesity as well as um, the various documentaries on like the negative impacts of what fast food has done. But over time, the um, agriculture industry and um, you know uh, supermarket retailers, they've had to change their business models to create a new system for growing organic food, um, mass growing it so that the everyday average consumer can, um, can go in and buy these produce at an affordable cost. But it took people like Trader Joe's as well as big agriculture you know, unions and suppliers and distributors and everyone in between um, to make major changes. So it's like, if we want to be solution oriented and solution driven, rather than just harping on what's happening um, and just, and just harping on like, um, you know, who to blame and who did what, I think there needs to be more effort going into extracting what other major industries have had to make changes that are might that might not necessarily be exactly the same, but like more ethical, more conscious, um, so that people can afford, you know, product at a reasonable, affordable price while still like taking care of um, themselves and the people who are growing and cultivating the actual product that we need. Um, so yeah, that just made me think of how for Gausser, you know, his supply chain um, is going from him and his company right to the factories back and then he's handling the distribution on his end too and it's like who do we need to cut out or who do we need to bring in and what are the major changes that like 
all these different corporations and governments, factory owners, workers, et cetera, need to be making in order to um, make this happen. Like Gausser's doing this from the start, from the get-go, um, whereas now all, everybody else has to make these changes. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to uh, share an example that, you know, organic produce market was able to do it. What can we learn from them um, and how can we apply it to the textile industry? 100%. And I know we're running low on time here, but just to conclude uh, the powerful reminder that Serene has provided us with, um, it all starts with consumer demand, right? And, and the key to everyone that's watching this, whether it's in real time or at a later date, is to demand ethics and sustainability while having a positive overall socioeconomic impact. Thank you so much for this awesome conversation. We didn't just touch on pay up. We didn't just touch on fast fashion. We sort of went through the building bricks of this industry and we looked at both sides of the brick wall we built. And I just, I love that we did that. We didn't point fingers, but we had a really in-depth discussion. I want to thank Gausser and Zareen for coming on, Cam with the great questions and just providing us with so much great feedback. Thank you. And everyone who's listening, be sure to check Gausser's brand out, Noya Jibon. Be sure to check um, Zareen out. And thank you so much, guys, for coming on. Gotta be honest With diamonds and pearls Yeah, yeah Bengalis in New York All over the world uh, It's the bony show uh, Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live From the slang we spit To the gangs we're with It doesn't matter We the essence of the Bangladesh I say, hey, come on Can you handle this? Representing the boroughs where the bangles live